0: Well, good morning again, everyone. It is great to be together. It is uh, great to be in week four of a five-week series on wisdom. And as you saw in that little video, our world and the culture we inhabit is not short on bits of wisdom. And whether that wisdom is good or not is obviously to be determined. But the fact that bits of wisdom exist is nothing new. The book of Proverbs is God's collection of one-liners, or you might even say tweets, for our generation, our time in history that we share. And so today, we are going to dip into another set of Proverbs, as Sally indicated this time, about how we approach children in our culture. And not everyone is a parent. Not everyone will become a parent. At any given time in the United States, only 50% of the folks in this country have children living in their homes with them. But the reality is, God's word has a lot to tell us about how we, whether we are parents or not, interact with and engage with the children that surround us in this world. And so that's what we're going to spend some time discussing this morning. If I asked you what comes to mind when I say the word family, you might have a variety of different definitions, a variety of different responses or answers. These six little letters can bring to mind possibly as many definitions as there are actual families themselves. Maybe you would say that families are big or small, traditional, non-traditional. Some families are single, quiet, loud, dysfunctional, broken, strict, relaxed. We say we have nuclear families, extended families. We say some families are empty nest. Families can be rich, poor, middle class, educated, musically inclined, sporty, bookish, Expat families, travel-savvy fav- families. We say we have families of origin. We say that we have family values. And we might say that blonde hair or brown hair or brown eyes or blue eyes, what, run in the family. We might have a feeling of fierce loyalty and love and determination to be near those who are our genetic or biological or nuclear family, or we may do a lot of work for good reasons to separate ourselves from the family of origin that we have come from. As many of you have experienced in your own lives, Family is not exclusively defined for most of us as simply those with whom we share biology or grew up sharing a home. It's been said that friends are the family that you choose. And our pop culture is not short on sitcoms or vignettes about family. The wise sage Gloria in Modern Family said family is family, whether it is the one you start out with, the one you end up with, or the family that you gain along the way. If you were to ask championship athletes what made their winning season so memorable and special, some of the Cubs said this last year, what helped them win was the sense of family they shared as a team of athletes together. Adam Grant, in a great book called Originals that traces the success of companies and of of projects, says that in part, corporate success is due to employees and colleagues who say their work experience feels like family to them. Not just individual isolated folks who are on some sort of corporate treadmill. And for millions and millions and millions of people throughout the centuries, the Church of Jesus Christ, with all its flaws and all of its broken parts, has felt for many like family. It is the family of God. And we may not all know each other, we may not ever talk to everybody in this room or everybody in this building, but every Sunday our little expression of that wider family gets together like we are now and we sing and we pray and we study God's word and we do the business of faith together as a family. And so as I said, you see there is not, uh, there's no shortage of family members and children in our global and certainly our church family. Whether you ever have been or ever will be a parent, our responsibility to care for children is something we cannot overlook, and it is important to God. According to the Pew Research Center in 2015, there were seven, slightly over seven billion people on planet Earth, two billion of those are children under age 15. And so while you may not personally have children in your home, there are literally billions of them <laughs> running around. And God's word has a lot to tell us about our responsibility to care and to nurture and to raise up those children. Throughout scripture, even in the book of James, God tells us we have to care for the vulnerable children the orphans, those who are fatherless or motherless. James 1.27 says this. Religion, which is, means worship, the gathering of God's people that God himself accepts as pure and faultless is this. It's to look after the orphans and the widows to care for the children who are in need in their distress. Jesus holds up the faith of children as an example. He's at a gathering with disciples and some of them are jockeying for position. They're jostling with one another. They're very curious who Jesus sees as the most powerful or the most wise or the most important among them. And rather than playing into their silliness, Jesus does this. Scripture says he called a child to him. In the middle of their conversation, he goes, come here. He calls a child to him, and he placed the child among them, and he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not be about my things unless you change and become like a child. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. In Matthew 19, 19, Jesus makes it very clear that when children were perceived as a nuisance, here he is, Jesus, the famous traveling rabbi at this time in his ministry. And when people tried to bring children to him, his disciples were like, no, 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 no. You know, this is Jesus. (laughs) Let's get these children out of here. We have the important work of religion to do. And Jesus says this, then people, brought little children to Jesus, or Matthew says this, for him. And they brought him to place his hands on them and pray for them. And the disciples rebuked them and Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Anne Lamotte once wrote, there are places in your heart that you don't even know exist until you dare to love a child. God cares very much about those places in our heart that need to be pulled out to love the children that he has brought into our lives and into this world. In the book of Proverbs, perhaps the most famous passage on parenting, on children, on coaching and mentoring and teaching, whatever it might be, is Proverbs 22, verse 6, and it reads this, start children off in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Start children off in the way they should go. Anything that we do with the rising generations that encourages them, teaches them, coaches them, mentors them, parents them, grandparents them, great-grandparents them, whatever it is that we do should be done to God's glory. So that we can train up the children entrusted to our care and eventually one day send them off and let them go, their own way to God. This is a verse about raising up and letting go. And everything that we do with a child is eventually about a moment where you let them go. The very physical act of having a child, the moment a child is born, they have been let go from the physical presence of a mother into a bright, light, you know, delivery room. When a parent teaches a child to walk, there is a moment where they let go, and that child toddles off. And then they lament the fact that it seemed like only yesterday they were walking across the room when eventually they give a child the keys to a car, or that child, perhaps after a four-year degree, comes home and packs up the contents of their childhood bedroom in the back of a car, and drives out across the country to start their first job or get their first apartment, or whatever it might be. If you are a teacher, the minute a student lands in your classroom, your job is to prepare them so that you can let go of them nine months later and hand them off to the next grade level. If you are a coach, Your job is to teach that child the sport so that one day they can love it enough to possibly play it in high school or college or just let go to the next level of t-ball or soccer or whatever it might be. This is what God is saying in this passage that we are to do with our faith as well. We are to train up children so that they can be let go into the world as agents of God's love and mercy and grace and hopefully can do better than we do at loving others for the kingdom purposes of God. To start children off. Start children off in the way they should go and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. The verb start off is also translated as to direct, to train up, to point in a certain direction. And this, uh, this actual verb in Hebrew is only used four other times in the Old Testament. And every time it is used, it is used uh, to either dedicate a husband and wife to one another in a marriage, or to dedicate the temple to God. There is a sense of consecration, of dedication, of setting apart, of marking a moment in preparation to honor another person or to honor God. So to raise up, to start out, to train up a child is to take them and set them apart and bestow upon them wisdom from God. In whatever context that looks like, and not all of us interact with children in a place that we can even be bold and outright about our love of God and our faith, but we can love them in godly ways so that the way they go hopefully becomes the way of God. Here's the horrifying part about this proverb. It is not a promise. There are many times where this passage has been cited as a promise, if we do our jobs as Sunday school teachers, as mentors, as confirmation mentors, whatever it might be, if we do our job, if we teach our kids the Bible, if we teach them how to pray, if we do a devotion with them every night before bed, we are inclined to see this as a promise that's gonna work out. Proverbs are not promises. They are words about wisdom. They are the ideal we are striving for. There is no promise in this passage as much as we might like it. There are children who have come from the most God-honoring, loving families and churches and schools who have made the worst decisions. How many of you ever made a dumb decision even though you knew better, even though somebody at your church told you that was gonna happen? There's little things that catch us off guard and then there's big things that terrify us. This is not a guarantee that nothing will go wrong This is a guarantee that the best chance we have of getting this right with our children is to train them up in the way of God and to let them go knowing they know something of the wisdom of God and the heart of compassion that he has for others. The ultimate goal of raising up children is to set them off in the way they should go. And our great joy as a community is to set them up for the greatest success we possibly can, no matter how children come in or out of our lives. So what I'd like to do with the time that we have in this sermon is share with you all six things, a list. I'm a mom, I give lists. I'm gonna give you six things. You can type them in your phone or write them down or just try to remember them, but there's six things that come to us through the Proverbs on parenting about what it means to be a wise community. How does a wise community bring to life God's best in the next generation? Here are six things that show up in scripture. First, the wise community does this task together. Together, It is why when we baptize babies, usually the baptismal font is right here, and there's a whole slew of parents with kids up front, and they look exhausted many times. Some of them have newborns, and they haven't slept, and they stand up here, and we baptize their children, and then we ask all of you to stand up. And the elder who's with us asks a question, and the question goes something like this, are you good to help with this? Parenting is exhausting, and this mom and dad, they don't have it all figured out. So are you going to be in this together with us? That is in the liturgy of baptism. To raise up children is to do it together. This proverb was originally authored to a community that understood togetherness in a way that our isolated uh, North American context doesn't always get The original community this proverb came from was the community of faith where a stranger or a traveler would come through town and you would take them into your home for weeks on end, where they would share the care of children and kids would run amok and families would care for them whether they belonged to them or not. It was a culture that had a sense of togetherness in a dramatically different way than we do. Psalm 133 reminds us, though, of the goodness of this. When God says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. So together we have a responsibility to care not just for the kiddos that if you look around the room you see right here now, but God's global family of children. In the United States alone there are 15 million children that live under poverty level, that need someone to help them get a a funding for a hot lunch or a backpack or a pair of shoes that they can handle going to school with for the next year because not everybody has that. Millions of children don't have that just in our country alone. According to the UN, there are roughly five to six million children in slavery right now in 2017. And of the over 65 million refugees in the world right now, over half of them, that's over 30 million children, do not have a country to call home, do not have the original house that they were once raised in. Some of them have been born in refugee camps. What is our responsibility for that? When I tuck my nine-year-old daughter in at night, it catches me sometimes. She's got her wet, clean head of hair. She just had a nice, warm shower. I tuck her into a a little fancy loft bed with all of her little blankets, and I think, Lord have mercy, there are girls her age working the streets right now in some countries. How do we together make these wrongs right and find ourselves in a posture of generosity and of caring and of raising up the children we see, but the millions of nameless and faceless ones that are in dark corners of the world that we don't see. And whether that's prayer, whether that's mission work, whether that's funding organizations that do that work, I don't know for you. But we have a responsibility together to care for our own and all of the children that God calls His. Second, the wise community is dedicated. We practice our faith in a way that our children can see. And again, we don't all work and serve in contexts where we can be super in your face about it. I'm not suggesting that every child you see, you pull aside and give a Bible and everything else too, but when possible, and especially if they live in your own home, live out your faith in a way that your children can see. Help them see your acts of generosity. Help them understand your acts of mercy. Take them to church. In scriptures, Deuteronomy 6 is the Shema, is what it's known as. It's one of the first prayers a Jewish child would learn. It's one of the last prayers that is prayed over a Jewish person as they leave this life, and it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, which is basically to say, don't stop talking about the things of God. Don't stop living out for children what a godly life looks for. Be a community that is dedicated because the wisdom of God says that is what we are to do. Proverbs 19:20 said, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who lives out. And not just verbally, but physically too. There's a great uh, Bible scholar named Steve Kang who says that what we need to be is not just people who give text books or Bible verses about God, but we need to be text people. People who live the things of God. We all know the sayings, the cliches, the modern proverbs about how children will hear one thing but they will pay attention to what we do. So how do we do the things of faith and dedicate them to God? The wise community is together. The wise community is dedicated. The wise community is committed. It's been said that parenting is not for the faint of heart. Teaching Sunday school is not either. (laughs) There are dozens of people right now in the rooms right below us, teaching our children, bouncing babies down the hall in the nursery. This week, there are 150 plus students from Christ Church of Oakbrook on three different mission trips. There are dozens of adults who took a week off of work to commit to that journey. Tomorrow, 77 fourth and fifth graders leave here and go to what is, for some of them, their first camp experience on a trip called Rock and Canoe. I am signed up to chaperone that trip And I would be lying to you if I told you I'm 100% excited about it. (laughs) I am excited. My daughter has been packed for a week for this trip. And I'm excited because I love my daughter. I love her friends. I want to do the stuff I'm preaching. I want to practice what I preach. I also really like my bed. (laughs) I like the TV at the end of the night. I like Starbucks in the morning. And I'm not getting that for a week. But I'm committed to the journey. My husband has been a hockey coach for, I think, going on eight years. About six of those years, he has coached two hockey teams. And I watch him, and I watch the guys he coaches with, and it's exhausting. They come home from long days at work, and then they go to an ice rink to try to have eight-year-olds somehow make sense of a really hard game. And there's parents in the stands that want a college scholarship out of this deal. (laughs) And people don't always Act kind to the coach. And I watch them, and it's loud in these rinks, and you see them as dads banging on the wall, trying to get the kids to go over there, and they're pointing out the blue line, and the kid's at the wrong blue line, or whatever it might be. And I always watch, you can always tell there's a moment where a kid comes off the bench, and you see the coach stick their fingers through the face guard and grab the cage, and just look at them. And they want yes to win, because who doesn't? But they want these kiddos that they coach to learn how to be good teammates. And sometimes they're gonna look at this kid because they need the kid to understand there are other skaters on the ice. (laughs) And it's not all about you, or whatever it is. And you don't turn a 7th year old into a good skater overnight, or two years, or three years, or four years, or sometimes ever. But they're committed to the sport they love and to the fact that The kids that have been entrusted to their care by God at a hockey rink matter to them, and they're committed to it. They see it through. So keep your commitments to kids. Follow through on what you promise to do for them. Do not give up when they annoy you or roll their eyes at you or ask more of you than you feel like you can give because the wise community is committed to seeing it through. It's committed. Fourth, the wise community is humbled. I don't like to be wrong, especially in front of my children. And if I am not careful, I will catch myself. I will say something dumb or stupid or irrational, and my children will go, really, Mom? And in my mind, I'm like, yes, really. Let's find a way to cover this up. You have to be humble. The point of coaching, of mentoring, of teaching, of teaching Sunday school, of parenting, is not to be right. Sometimes the greatest lesson that you can teach a child is admitting that you're wrong. They will learn more from your mistakes at times than they will from your success if you are honest about your mistakes. Proverbs 16 reads, Pride goes before destruction a haughty spirit before the fall. We do not have to be right just because they are little and we are big. (laughs) And sometimes, as Jesus himself said, the greatest lessons are learned in reverse. When you are honest enough to say to a kid, you're right, you just saw something that I've never seen. I was wrong. And you were right, we are a humbled community. The wise community is together, it is dedicated, it is committed, it is humbled. And the wise community is disciplined. Proverbs 19 stresses me out, listen to this. Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. In boundaries, in discipline, in setting right from wrong, there is hope. And then it reads this way. Do not be a willing party to their death. Yikes. Discipline them so that they can live a good life, so that they know right from wrong, so that when you let go of them, the way they should go includes good decision-making because it is life and death. And there are decisions that they will make or are making every single day, a lot of them a lot younger than we think they're making these decisions, that could even lead to their own death and destruction. And one of the ways to prevent that is to set out boundaries for kids. In an increasingly boundaryless society, there are things that are right and wrong. And there are good ways to move through this world. And the Bible is full of them. That is what it teaches us. So do not hesitate to discipline your child. Some of us need to do it with a little more backbone than maybe we've been doing. Some of you may need to chill out a little bit. Maybe you have a kid going, Mom. But reality is, there is right and there is wrong. Discipline. Your children, if they don't learn it from you or from their Sunday school teacher or a coach or a parent, where are they going to learn it? They're not going to turn on Nickelodeon and figure it out. We have to teach them. We have to provide boundaries. We have to discipline our children. Proverbs 13, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. And last the wise community is parented. And what I mean by that is the wise community remembers that we, regardless of our age or life stage, are still children. We are God's children. And so there is never a point at which we have learned everything there is to learn, where we know the way to all truth. There is never a point where we are actually beyond the reproach of a parent, there is never a point at which we are done with discipline when we remember that we are parented, that we are God's children, that we are learning his lessons as we go. When we remember that we are able then to be better people for the children that God has put before us. The best teachers are learners. When we forget that we are parented, we're not going to be good at parenting ourselves. And the beautiful part about God our parent is that he is graceful and he is forgiving and he is dedicated to us and he dedicated his only son to our success and redemption. So he knows something about this parenting thing that we then trust and take from him and God willing, give it in whatever form we've been invited to do so to the children who are all around us. There was recently a, a post on Craigslist, uh, somebody, a group of folks actually, who had run an ad for a dad and it read this way, the Huffington Post actually picked up this piece, it read this way. It was a bunch of guys that were getting ready to have a barbecue, and the ad reads this way. It says, to interested individuals, we will be throwing a backyard barbecue on June 17th. We range in age from 21 to 26, and while most of us know how to operate a grill, none of us are prepared to fill the role of, quote, barbecue dad. That being said, we are in need of a generic father figure from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m., and then in parentheses it says, although you are welcome to stay for the duration of the party. Your duties include grilling hamburgers and hot dogs, bringing your own grill, and then in parentheses, this may be subject to change, we will provide the meat. Refer to all barbecue attendees as big guy, big chief, sport, or champ. One of the other requirements is to talk about dad things, like lawnmowers, building your own deck, and Jimmy Buffett. (laughs) And then it says, funny anecdotes are highly encouraged. Here's the requirements. A minimum of 18 years as a father, a minimum 10 years grilling experience, and then they wrote, this is a real ad. Please do not hesitate to call if you are interested. Preference will be given to applicants named Bill, Randy, or Dave. It turns out, uh, the Huffington Post picked this up, and the last bit of the story that I was able to trace, they were actually trying to get Bill Murray to go be the barbecue dad, right? It's cheeky, this is something a little bit silly, right? But it was interesting. Where did this come from? It was a bunch of 20-year-old guys together being silly. Was there more there? I don't know, where were their dads? Maybe, maybe they didn't have the dad they had wanted and we're kind of sending this out, I don't know, in every child is a sort of want ad. <laughs> There's a list of things they need from us. There's a list of requirements. Some of your names are listed. There is something you can provide them that either their own parents can't, for good reasons or aren't able to, or shouldn't because sometimes the Sunday school teacher or the youth pastor is the one to do it. Or the volunteer who showed up and thought they didn't know what to do but really was the one that made the difference. There is some sort of ad, some sort of Craigslist post in the hearts of children and in our own hearts if we're honest as well. And so in closing, I'd like you to consider that and think for a moment about this post about this ad, if you would, from Proverbs verse three, chapter three, verses one through six, which is what this whole journey looks like if we do it right. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. This my friends is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your words. Lord, thank you that in the letting go, we turn the children that are already yours back over to you. Help us be a faithful people who are not afraid to live into your wisdom, who are not afraid to be humble and disciplined and together and to work toward your good truths. And God, we pray right now in this moment for the children of this church and those around the world. For the two billion little hearts and precious minds and beautiful faces that you created to reflect your glory to others. May we be known as a church that does your good work for the children of this world. Now and forevermore, and everybody together said, Amen.